Mini episode 1285 of the FDH Lounge is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FDH Lounge Mini Episode 1285. This is FDH Managing Partner Rick Morris here. We have part 31 of our Coronavirus Crisis 2020 series today. And many of the segments that we have done on this since March have been where the coronavirus has been subtext to something, i.e. Uh, reviewing events that have taken place uh, in bubbles because of this, whether it be uh, the NBA playoffs, the Stanley Cup playoffs, uh, WrestleMania 36 for that nature. We've covered many, many things here, uh, the political conventions where it has been subtext, but today the virus is at the forefront because we have an excellent conversation. We're going to be having two folks on here, one who is a longtime FDH lounge dignitary and a good friend, but it is uh, a guest that he is bringing on to the show where we will probably be uh, primarily focused on what she's got to say on matters of epidemiology because she does have a master's in public health. The friend that I speak of, an FDH Lounge dignitary, is, of course, Steve Callis. And, of course, you can hear him on his podcast uh, with uh, Joe Stazak. They do that and put that out on a weekly basis. You can catch him on his regular uh, appearances on 97.5 The Fanatic in Philadelphia. So whether it's Callous Remarks podcast, whether it's being on there, you can catch him there. You can catch him on our show quite a good amount. He is bringing on to the show today because, of course, Steve is the sports editor of the WestchesterCountyPost.com. And uh, as the sports editor of the WestchesterCountyPost.com, by the way, you can see a number of sports and wellness videos so please go to Westchester County Post to their YouTube channel. Uh, but it is his publisher that he is bringing on the show today. Janelle Albritton is the publisher of WestchesterCountyPost.com. She has, as I indicated, a master's in public health. And uh, I have some bio information that was sent over here that uh, she focuses on people to help them live high-quality lives with solid information about themselves and their loved ones. Preventing death and despair are her key goals. But it is easier to measure progress in terms of people overcoming their challenges, such as losing weight, quitting nicotine, or healing from PTSD. Uh, so this is a multi-talented individual that we have on. Uh, as well, I do know uh, we probably won't be covering a whole lot on this today, but if she wants to, we can. A uh, very talented jazz singer, I understand, as well. So perhaps, like Steve Perry before her on this show, perhaps she'll bust out a few acapella notes at some point that that's entirely up to her. But uh, it is my pleasure to bring onto the show Janelle Albritton, the publisher of WestchesterCountyPost.com. Janelle, Welcome to the show. It is a pleasure to have you on today. Hello, Rick. <laughs> Good to have you there, Steve. Good to have you on as well, my friend. Always a pleasure to be with you, Rick. Looking forward to it. When we Thank get... you for having me. Sure. It's a pleasure to have you on. And when we get to a couple of these things that are more focused on uh, the sports aspect of this, 
Uh, we will sort of reach over and make the hot tag to Steve and get his thoughts on it because I know that he has some thoughts and some statistics on this uh, Steelers-Titans deal on having to get moved back later uh, in the season uh, as far as uh, how much the outbreak has affected that clubhouse. But as far as taking a big-picture look at the disease, uh, it is, again, very good to have on somebody who has a master's in public health and can take a look at it that way. And, again, as we are taping this, and I realize there's always a little bit of a lag time in terms of production and getting it up. Hopefully there won't be a lot. Hopefully we can get this up without too many uh, issues or snags this time as far as time delay because we are in a very rapidly moving 24-hour news cycle. We are recording this on the day that uh, we all awoke to the news this morning of the President and the First Lady coming down with COVID-19. And uh, as we are taping now, literally news is coming across that uh, the President is being taken to Walter Reed Hospital. So this represents yet another turning point as far as our understanding of this, uh, in, in a popular sense anyways. I know the epidemiologists have been focused on this and have known uh, about the spread of this and the patterns all along. So I guess uh, the best way probably, Janelle, is just to start on a big picture kind of a way. We're about six months into this, at least as far as a public understanding of it. Six and a half months. It was right around mid-March that the shutdown started happening and that we have been basically in our present reality. So I guess I'll just start by asking you sort of in a big picture way how our understanding, how your understanding in the community of those who study the disease, how it has sort of evolved over these six and a half months. Well, in terms of the understanding of this, uh, the truth is that uh, it's hard to get a lot of data in the beginning because you're at the beginning of, the, of that curve. Right? You don't have enough people to get the data from. So that, that's really what it means when we say it's a novel virus. It's new to the human race. And we don't really, we didn't really know six, seven, eight months ago how it interacts with the human body. But we were able to quickly see as the researchers are connected internationally. Um, and I saw the video of Dr. Fauci saying how this was a nightmare um, virus that is easily transferred, it goes straight to the lungs, and uh, can can cause death in a very short period of time if, if left untreated. So that's the worst case scenario that we've seen with a number of people, especially those who have um, comorbidities, meaning, you know, uh, problems with their health prior to getting infected with the coronavirus. So we've really been gathering a lot of data along the way, but... Uh, the one thing that I want to put out there is to encourage people to not be afraid because there has been research happening for hundreds of years on how to help people not die. There have been physicians for thousands of years. And the research that I've been doing in particular, um, I want to mention a, a physician who's a, he's a board-certified internal medicine and cardiologist specialist. He's also an attorney. His name is Thomas Levy. And I'm reading his book right now called Curing the Incurable. And he has been summarizing the research that really exploded in the 1930s using high, high doses of vitamin C over days, weeks, even months to eradicate diseases such as polio, measles, mumps, viral encephalitis, pneumonia, and even more recently in the 80s and 90s to help people reverse, completely reverse HIV and uh, AIDS. So we've got tools at our disposal, but we don't know about 
about them because they can't be patented and therefore Big Pharma can't make a lot of money off of it. So we need to equip ourselves with the right knowledge and find the right practitioners who know about it and are willing to deliver the treatment in a timely manner. And one of those doctors that I know is, his name is Dr. David Brownstein. I had the pleasure of meeting him last week. I went out to Michigan as kind of a personal vacation slash medical pilgrimage. And he's written a number of books on on a different area, areas of um, health and wellness, particular having to do nutrition and how to make sure our bodies can fight off the virus by itself. Well, in terms of what you just mentioned there, I'm curious about something. You mentioned vitamin C, but I had a good friend of mine who, and I have thanked him a number of times since this whole thing started, who suggested that I get on vitamin D, which I really hadn't been on previously. So I had a little bit of about a uh, you know, maybe a 60-day jump to, to when the news started coming out in the spring uh, that they had been finding that, uh, again, there are many questions here of causation and correlation, which is which in a situation like this, but vitamin D deficiency, if you got it, you're more likely to have this go poorly. If you don't have it, you're more likely to do better on that. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on uh, vitamin D as far as some of the patterns that, that we've been seeing here, and, and how much credence do you give that as far as uh, if you got a good supply of vitamin D and you, you might do a better job of fighting this off? what our uh, blood serum levels are of different things. And just to make sure that we have enough. Um, I recently got tested and my vitamin D is fine, but um, it's very important that, that we have enough vitamin D. And so it all works together. Another element that we need in our diet is iodine. I recommend uh, Lugol's iodine. You can order it. It's very inexpensive. Um, about you know 20 drops in, in a glass of water. Take that once a day. Every cell in our body needs iodine. Every cell in our body needs these vitamins to function. And we, as Americans, are the most overfed, undernourished population on the planet. We've got obesity going through the roof. And by the way, obesity reduces the effectiveness of the vaccine. So a friend of mine recently um, made it a point to lose the extra 50 pounds she was walking around with because she was very concerned. Obesity is, um, you know, helps. It's a comorbidity to begin with, but also, even if we get a vaccine that works, folks who are obese, like 30 pounds plus, especially 50 pounds plus overweight, they're not going to experience uh, the maximum benefit from the vaccine. And so this circles back around to today. The point is that we don't have a vaccine today, so what can we do today to strengthen our immune systems as much as possible so that even if we do get infected, our bodies will be able to fight it off. Now, we can prevent it by wearing masks, by washing our hands, practicing physical distancing, but there's no magic silver bullet to make sure that you don't get infected unless you just stay home, and that's less and less an option nowadays. So besides masking and washing hands, practicing good hygiene, we really need to be sure to make sure we've got enough vitamin D, lots of vitamin C, um, make sure we're not iodine deficient, and even... Just start taking some iodine. It's non-toxic in small amounts. 
and uh, your body will uptake what it needs and just expel the rest. Very good. Iodine is something I had not heard about previously. Another thing that I have heard about uh, over a period of time is zinc. And uh, I'd gone out and gotten some zinc tablets uh, when I heard about that. Uh, what, what have you heard about the effectiveness of that in uh, either, either prevention in the first place or uh, mitigation uh, if you get it? Zinc is a very good nutrient to help the body um, kind of escape the virus. Mm -hmm. it, it is given in conjunction with low doses of hydrochloroquine mm -hmm. for prevention. Now, hydrochloroquine has to be used very judiciously. It's, it's not recommended for folks of cardiac issues. It's got to be used very, very carefully. But it has been used, um, from what my research shows, it has been relatively successful so far in helping uh, reduce infection rates and to um, and to help uh, the viral load not increase too quickly after someone is infected. But it, it's really the best application for it is in the early stages of infection. But to know whether you're infected, you've got to be tested on a fairly frequent basis. And so the biggest problem in this epidemic has been the lack of testing, the lack of access to free testing, because I don't know about you, but I'm not paying $150 for a test if I'm feeling okay. Right. And that's, that's been a big barrier to, uh, to getting a handle on this epidemic. And I will go on record here, as I have been on record in the past. Back in March, I predicted rolling hotspots nationwide through the end of the year and into next year. And I'm right about that. And I hope I'm wrong about the second prediction, that I predict between 300 and 500,000 deaths by Christmas. Well, that would be a major spike from what we're seeing right now, certainly at the rate of it, and a lot of people are still in disbelief that it's reached 200,000, so yeah, that could get pretty bad. When we were getting the spike over the summer, and again, me just sort of being an armchair kind of a guy, a layman, I was looking at it more so like you know, the second spike of the first wave, essentially, as opposed to a distinct one here. But this fall one has been predicted for quite some time. And uh, again, coinciding with flu season, albeit as we've been hearing that uh, flu in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, they've been doing a very good job of fighting it off this year, whether it be because of pre-existing uh, social distancing that was in place, slash masks or whatever. So hopefully we won't have a bad flu season here. But as, as far as whether you want to call it the second wave, the third spike of the first wave, whatever it would be, what are you seeing about the fall season into the winter uh, that scares you the most beyond the obvious of indoors more and packed more together and you know not able to get outside as much? Are, are there other specific things about this that are leading you to believe that it's going to be a really horrible time period within this horrible time overall? The two main things that scare me are, uh, first of all, the, well, the, the two things that are related would be related to fatigue. So the first thing is that there's a lot of financial fatigue going on. A lot of businesses shutting down. Um, whatever savings people were able to, to have to help them float, maybe dried up. Uh, you know, the government uh, disbursement of assistance has not been coming since the first uh, disbursement. And it's six months later and, and people are, are running out of cushions. And so in the winter, it, it's, uh, I'm, I'm really concerned that the economic pressure is going to have its effects on the psychosocial health of uh, individuals and the communities at, at large. I'm very concerned about that. And secondly, folks who refuse to wear masks 
and who insist that it's a hope are part of the problem of, of why it continues to spread. And um, Americans tend to not look outside of the country very much. They're not really aware um, as a culture. We don't really connect to other countries in the world unless that's their ancestry. So we really, I would like to see more um, studies and, and uh, interesting information coming from other countries and look at the best practices and what they're doing right. For example, Japan never shut down, and they're doing pretty well. Uh, they're experiencing a little bit trending upwards, but I think they're going to really have a handle on it. But then you've got a relatively more homogenous society, and Asia at large understands that if you feel sick you and you're going out in public, you wear a mask. That's what they do. And so there's a cultural difference uh, there, uh, very different from what we have here. So as people are packing in closer indoors in the cold weather, the, the not distancing is a problem, not wearing a mask is a problem, um, saying it's a hoax is a problem. Um, I have a number of friends here who not only had COVID, but almost died from it. And I also have friends and family who have died from COVID. So for some people, it's not real because it has not affected them personally. Yeah, and it really is a shame that it's uh, a political football at this point. And uh, it, like, like you said, there's no reason for it to be because it should be taken seriously by everybody. And unfortunately, uh, it is not. And this is one of these things here where in terms of making the right preparations for this, uh, as far as how you're going to deal with it all the way around. When we're talking about some of the bigger institutions out there, of course, in America, those would be the biggest sports leagues. And I said since the spring, basically, looking at what the NBA ended up doing subsequently, the NHL, that if you're not doing a bubble, you're just kidding yourself because you're just basically throwing it out there to the wind, hoping you can get by. Now, MLB, after some early uh, struggles, and it looked like they might not get past the first week or two of their season, they have basically made it through pretty well. We start to see the first tremors in the NFL at this point, particularly in football, where you're looking at, at a sport where person-to-person -person transmission uh, could be very, very huge because of the physical makeup of it. There, are, There's no social distancing in football, uh, unless, uh, and Steve Callis would appreciate this, unless you're Richard Sherman in the Super Bowl and you're losing the wide receiver by about 20 yards as he blows by you for a touchdown, <laughs> that's the only social distancing you get in the NFL is on a broken play. But uh, in, in terms of looking at this, uh, you know, from a public health standpoint, when you're talking about clubhouses, when you're talking about uh, the, the, the very the day-to-day -day nature of sports, in the, in the NBA and the NHL bubbles, they were able to take away the danger of it because, again, they were still, for all those of us watching the games, still doing masks and some degree of social distancing off of the court slash ice uh, at other times there. But uh, in the NFL uh, and MLB, where these guys, MLB is going to be going into a modified bubble in the postseason, although I don't consider it to be a real one. But when you're looking at guys who, when they get done at practice, might be stopping at the grocery store afterwards and getting coughed on by the same person that might cough on me or you at, at, the, uh, at the grocery store here, and then going out and playing on Sunday, there are aspects of it that just, no matter the level of precautions, no matter the level of tests, it still just seems like Russian roulette to me on this. And again, baseball and football have made it further than I thought they would. But you have a week like this one where the Tennessee Titans have an outbreak. And uh, maybe old Ricky was right about this thing after all, unfortunately. 
Well, I'd like to take this moment to once again extend my invitation to Roger Goodell um, to retain me as a consultant. Nice. I think he really needs me. Yes. Um, and I also want to give a shout out to Adam Silver. He's a new hero of mine. He's the only commissioner who I have seen on video say that he quarantines his folks from the time they're tested until they get the time of the result. That's absolutely solid application of science plus the bubble. And to have a bubble in Orlando is a very bold move. Yes. And the fact that his rates are so low in the hot spot of the country is just I'm just—I just love this guy. I want to give him a big hug as soon as I am able to, because he really—he's the only one who really, really gets it. And as for baseball, um, Steve and I did a video on that a few months ago, and I was just uh, face palming every 20 seconds as Steve was telling me, you know, what they were doing. And then we also saw Commissioner Rob um, talking with Sanjay Gupta and Anderson Cooper, and um, you know, Rob was just. He was just saying all those kind of word salad. He, he was talking a lot, but nothing he said was of much substance. And it, that's when we were predicting some really serious COVID issues in the in the baseball league. Yeah, and you raise an excellent point about Orlando because, again, and this just shows you how the world uh, changes. When the NBA put together their plan early summer to come back in Orlando, at that point, Florida wasn't that much of an issue. I remember there was still the whole premature kind of victory lap deal about uh, DeSantis. I, I think even into early June, ooh, so much for all the consequences of just throwing Florida open, and then they ended up having a pretty brutal summer, as a lot of people thought well, that they might. He took his victory lap during the incubation period after spring break. It was the worst time for him to, you know, bang his, his fist on his chest. Very much so. And again... You get into a situation like this, and again, another classic example of the politicization of the disease and the way that that has gone. And subsequently, this was a thing where I, I know in, in talking about it with uh, FDH NBA analyst Ben Chu, we were kind of looking at it like, you know, we, we were skeptical that the NBA would make it all the way through because to me, the soft underbelly of this thing was the fact that the Disney employees weren't sequestered inside the bubble. They were right. they were going not home every night. Yeah, and, right. and somehow or another, that ended up not being an issue. They made it anyways. Yeah, it was really um, a really good lineup of, of, of fortunate events. And um, what I will also say is a big concern of, about that I have about COVID. It may be a 1% death rate, but let's not be dismissive about that because if, you know, 20 million people get infected and 1% of them die, it's a tragedy, especially if most of those infections were preventable. So that's why for me personally, the month of February was much more difficult than March and April because February was the time to act and to prevent what we have seen happen since. My second point that I'd like to make is that there's a whole group of folks on Facebook and they call themselves the long callers. And these are folks who have clinically, technically, medically survived COVID and recovered from it but not completely. They still have long-term effects, long-term heart damage, liver, kidney, lung damage, and sometimes even brain damage. And so we are, uh, we're looking at those folks and epidemiologists are, you know, I predict there could be, you know, hundreds of PhDs coming out of this COVID situation.
because of the damage to their body. And just imagine if the athletes recover from COVID but have long-term effects, long-term damage on their heart and lungs. How can they continue their career and how can they have the same potential after the infection as before? That's an excellent point. And we have seen some athletes in the last couple months. I really thought that would be the canary in the coal mine once sports got going again. Any number of them, whether it be Freddie Freeman or Donovan Mitchell famously, or there have been a number of them who've come out and played well uh, and really had no ill effects. But yeah, you know there's got to be some among them that have been having ill effects perhaps or will be. And I got to say too, I mean, because I, I hear the same uh, garbage type stuff from people too, and even from good friends of mine about you know, the alleged death rate. First of all, I don't believe at all that it's 1% because I think there's been an undercount not just here, but globally. I don't trust China's numbers. I don't trust Iran's numbers. Uh, and, and here, because of the, the testing being a national disgrace, I don't trust the numbers here as well. So I, I think the, the, the count of cases as well as the fatalities, I think there's an undercount rather than an overcount. You hear the conspiracy people, oh, well, hospitals have a, 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 you know, a financial incentive to put COVID-19 on the death certificate. I don't think that comes close to matching the undercount. Uh, whatever overcount you get in specific instances, I don't think comes close to matching the other side of it. That's just my guess anyways. But in looking at this here, this whole situation, that's my biggest fear with this thing is what you just said about the ongoing effects. If I get this, I don't think I'm going to die. My concerns are, I don't want it to spread it to anybody else. I live in close proximity uh, to a number of old people. I wouldn't want that on my conscience. And uh, again, the long-term effects of this thing. I ain't looking to get something I'm going to have to carry around for the next several decades of my life. And I think more people ought to be looking at it through that prism. You'd have a lot less people taking stupid chances if that was the case. And I got to say, and I'm just going to editorialize here. Uh, nobody else has to associate themselves with my remarks unless they want to. But I think we've learned, when you're talking about globally, Janelle, I think we've learned a lot of very disappointing things about the fabric of this country this year and the rampant irresponsibility that's out there. And it's one thing to embrace freedom as we Americans want to do, but freedom without responsibility is just basically license. And uh, the, the, the number of people who just don't give a crap about anybody else, we, we've learned a lot more about the bad side of this country this year than I think a lot of us really would have anticipated. And again, it all just comes back to eliminating irresponsibility. If we weren't as irresponsible as a people, if we just handle this thing better as far as having our own discipline, even without leadership from above, which we could bemoan, I think, at federal, state, and local levels throughout this thing based on where you live. But if people themselves were more responsible, this thing would have faded to a fraction of what it is, I believe. Well, I, I agree with you to a point because responsibility is based on knowledge and education. And the public health education system in this country has been underfunded and broken for a very long time. Being a health educator is not a well-paying job. Even with a master's degree, it starts out at around 40000 a year. If you can get a job in the field, um, because there's not, not a lot of funding at the county health level. But in response to what you just said, I, I've got uh, three points. First of all, yeah, I, I concur with you. Uh, number Point number two is, I, I use this analogy in terms of undercounting or overcounting corona death. It's like this. My dad has Parkinson's, okay? His ability to balance and stand, uh, he, he'd rather walk than stand. And now if he has to stand for long periods of time, he gets tired. He 
them as an example. But let's just say someone who isn't very strong, who doesn't have good balance, is standing on a platform, the train is coming, and somebody shoves them from behind. They can't catch their balance. They stumble 10 or 12 steps. They go off the edge of the platform and get run over by the train and die. So what is the cause of death? Did they get hit by a train and that's why they died? Or is it the shove that killed them? Or is it because they didn't have good balance and couldn't catch their balance in time before they went off the edge? That is a perfect analogy to me because even though young people might be able to turn around and, and shove that person back and get into a fist fight and the train goes by without hurting anybody, that's just them. They're the ones who can, who can take that kind of push from behind. But there are a lot of people who cannot. And if you want to say, no, they died of pneumonia or no, they died of, they died of cardiac arrest. Well, we never had this conversation in the AIDS epidemic. They died of AIDS. But actually, technically, many of the folks who died of AIDS actually died of pneumonia. Right. But that was an infection that was secondary to the acquired immune deficiency syndrome, which was caused by the human immuno, immuno uh, deficiency virus. So we can play word games all we want, but what is it that's causing the, the person's inability to fight off the virus? So is it, was it diabetes? No, they were living with diabetes before they got infected with coronavirus. And then if they die, you want to say that coronavirus had nothing to do with it because they had diabetes? But they didn't die of diabetes. They were living with diabetes before their infection. So this is just part of the, I think, health education that really has not been done in this country. And other countries have done a much better job at educating the public so that they're already primed to understand um, what it means to distance and to mask and to practice good hygiene. And I'm pretty sure a lot of people in this country realize how infrequently they wash their hands when they really should be washing their hands more often. That's right. And I have to say that, again, I think a lot of the whole thing about the statistics and does it count or not, from my personal experiences of having conversations with friends, and this disappoints me to say this, uh, because I'm speaking primarily of uh, folks who are what you would call on my side of the public policy spectrum, and so it's been very disappointing. Uh, but a, again, the tribalism kind of taking over, and, and maybe, you know, in my extreme youth, maybe I used to be more prone to tribalism as well. But uh, to, to be looking at it purely through the prism of that, trying to hand wave away deaths because you think it'll be good for your guy to do so, uh, that's what I see in the motivations, quite frankly, of a lot of my good friends uh, when they are arguing that there's overcounts and all oh, hospitals and this, that, whatever. And uh, again, anytime there are financial incentives in place, yes, it can warp things. But uh, if, if you honestly think that uh, what hospitals are doing with their statistics accounts for all the people that never got counted in the first place, because I know a, a couple instances of people who weren't able to get tested, who had it in all likelihood, and they'll never show up on the statistics. And if I know a handful of people living here in flyover country, uh, the north coast of America here uh, in the, the Cleveland, Ohio area, we haven't been hit that hard by it. So if I know a couple instances of this, imagine how many other instances are out there. And from this perspective here, we were talking about a minute or so ago about uh, the sports part of this. I want to reach over and make the hot tag to uh, Steve Callis and get some thoughts on that a little bit more specifically because, uh, Steve, there's a situation now where it has become clear what you and I and anybody who was paying attention already knew about this, which is that the NFL really didn't have a plan in any kind of a way. Their plan was to cross their fingers and hope for the best. The fact that there is no 
uh, extra room built in after the season for there to be makeup games because conceivably now, I mean, unless the outbreak in Florida gets really, really bad again, they might be looking at playing a Super Bowl with a full stadium down there in Tampa. So uh, the whole notion of having to keep the Super Bowl on that date because of people's hotel reservations and stuff, that is a real type of a deal here. And so the, the, the NFL is boxed in because rescheduling is not nearly as easy as it is in MLB or in other sports where you could just shift things around a little bit here because of the lag time you need between games for players to recover, albeit with the Thursday night games, they really only pay lip service to recovering uh, as far as that goes, but that's another story for another day. So in looking at this and how it's played out, you had mentioned to me off air that the NFL, uh, for the moment, they appear to have a, a solution to this problem that just means shifting around, I think, weeks seven and eight for the affected teams. But uh, they have underscored yet again just how completely unprepared they are for when there's a real outbreak or something that takes down multiple teams. 100%, Rick, and we'll just have to see how this shakes out. But as you know, uh, the Titans played the Vikings on Sunday. And on Monday, four, three players and five staff tested positive. And then every day this week, at least one more player has tested positive. And we're now... As we do this on Friday, there was another player today, a couple of wide receivers, in fact. And so we're at seven players and six staff, literally from Monday to Friday. Now, I'll defer to Janelle on this, but we don't know if that happened on Sunday and everyone got infected, or we don't know if it happened the Sunday before. It could be one or two or three or four days in terms of an incubation period. It could be from the week before, eight or nine or ten days. I'm sure you know the Herman Cain story from Tulsa. Yep. When he went, went indoor, uh, Trump rally, no mask, 74 years old, underlying conditions, nine days later diagnosed, three weeks later dead. Uh, I know you can't say directly, but probably, that was probably a big problem showing up there, having that picture taken with a bunch of his friends, all of them had no mask on. But specifically, you're right, in terms of the NFL schedule, they just got lucky. Because they were able to work this game in in week seven and then move another game to week eight because two teams have the same bye week, so very lucky. But that's all it is, is luck. And we have to see so far the Vikings have nothing. And again, I'll defer to Janelle, but if the Vikings play the Titans on Sunday, that doesn't mean they're going to turn around and be positive on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday. And incidentally, the Vikings had a staff member who had been positive the week before who they left home and and sent the whole, I'm sorry, the Titans had a guy who was positive and left him home, like a weight training guy or something. And so you don't really know the history. You can make an educated guess, I guess. But it seems to me that this could be the beginning. As you pointed out, Rick, the Marlins and the Cincinnati Reds, and you know, said this would happen. Yep. They had major outbreaks at the beginning of the year. I think 17 Marlins and about 11 Reds. But they could do all these seven-inning doubleheaders, which I know we'll talk about on another show. But they were able to do it because they were playing every day. And then instead of nine, they went to seven. And they were able to do it. Then they had a couple of more minor outbreaks. I think they went to daily testing, which, again, I know from Janelle is something that you should do at all times. The NFL is doing that, thankfully. Um, But we don't know if this is the beginning of something big. But at a minimum, you've now had a game that you'll recall they wanted to play not Sunday, but Monday or Tuesday, coming up after this weekend, and now they've totally given up on that because the numbers went from three players 
to seven players and six staff members. So they're watching the Vikings. No positive test yet, but I don't think the Vikings are out of the woods yet. Again, I would uh, defer to Janelle in terms of could we hear some Vikings being positive next week when it's seven, eight, nine, ten days later? That's a good question, and uh, I think that would be good for a follow-up here. Uh, Janelle, if you're looking at the Vikings, if you're looking at a team that played uh, a team that had an outbreak last Sunday, uh, the fact that they would have tested clean, or at least most of them, to this point uh, in the week, should that be something that would give any kind of sense of relief here? Because I do know in the NBA, one of the things that uh, ended up making it clear that they made the right deal shutting it down in mid-March was the number of teams, including my Cleveland Cavaliers, that had to go into quarantine because of either having played the Utah Jazz or teams that had just played the Utah Jazz. It becomes a spiraling web outward. So for the Minnesota Vikings, having played Tennessee last Sunday, what is basically the extent of that shadow of fear that they are under as far as potential infections yet at this point? Well, I'll go back to the science of it. Um, this virus travels in droplets of saliva and mucus that comes out of the mouth and nose. And how, you know, 300-pound men can bang their heads against each other and expect to not breathe each other's mist is something I don't understand. So um, on the web, on my website, there's and on the YouTube channel, you can see a video that I share from PBS. Uh, it's a feature called Schlering Photography, where it shows a side view of someone coughing, sneezing, singing, speaking, and it shows that mist coming out of their mouth. Kind of like, you know, you see the heat wave rising up from a, a, a road in the distance. Right. And it, it creates that mirage effect. That's the same concept. So when we're shout talking, cheering, booing, you know, cheering your favorite political candidate without that, there's a greater propulsion of this myth that's going out into the air. And so some genius um, might invent some way to have these football masks or the um, baseball is already masking, but if, if there's some way that the football helmet can have a filter that can catch these droplets, uh, it would greatly reduce the infection rate. The virus does, it's not Tinkerbell. It doesn't just flap around by itself. It travels in a capsule, in a, in a little spaceship called a saliva drop, right? And right. these drops, if you squeeze, the bigger drops drop sooner because they're heavier, but the mist that comes out of our mouth naturally as we're breathing and talking, it can float around in the air for a longer period of time. So when you've got 20 men banging their heads in the same area, even though they're outside, a very deep breathing, um, there's, there's a very high risk for transmission there. I performed outside just a few days ago. All the musicians were masked. I was not wearing a mask, but I was standing in front of them, six feet away from anybody, and about 20 feet away from the first audience member. Mm-hmm. I felt very safe. And so there are ways that you can do, but, you know, being a, being a defense or offense player on, in the NFL without any kind of uh, protective gear, I don't see how how that's going to work. And so, Roger Goodell, are you listening? Give me a call. You know, I'd love to call for you because there's, there's a lot of uh, potential... They could even merchandise this stuff and, and make it cool and save lives and um, they could, you know, put logos on it. They could make a ton of money at this. And if that doesn't appeal to them, if it appeals to make money and overwhelm what you call, what I think you mean as tribalism, you know, going without a mask in a high-risk high environment, um, me, doesn't say that you're 
Yeah, well, and, and again, I, I very famously on this show have, have, have had a lot of disgust for uh, Goodell's approach to a number of things. So uh, while we would we would all be doing better off if he would avail himself of your services, I'm afraid we don't live in that world because I don't think he really cares much about the health and welfare of anybody that stands between him and the NFL making a buck. That's just my uh, sort of dim view of the circumstance, but yeah, I mean, if if he if he did if he was so inclined, yes, he should pick up the phone and do that because he needs to be talking to you or somebody like you. And uh, yeah. one additional thing, well, we've, got, I, we've got three letters, right? CTE, yeah, leave of denial, you know. Well, yeah, this is, this is done all over again, but with a much shorter timeline. What an excellent comparison, and I don't know that I'd really thought about this in 2020 in that context, but you're absolutely right, yes. I mean, that that was sort of the canary in the coal mine for where we're at now, because they have dealt with uh, the public health issues previously in terms of uh, concussions and the long-term brain damage and stuff like that, and done so uh, really only at the point of a gun, essentially, as they've gone along here. They've done what they've been forced to do, and that's pretty disgraceful as well. What I want to ask about, as it relates to football, it relates also to other areas in life, such as, for example, I will plead guilty to uh, being the guy where I go out to the mailbox uh, and I hit that thing with uh, a little bit of sanitizer uh, before I uh, touch it or whatever, whether it be a spray or a wipe, whatever the case may be. Droplets landing, uh, six and a half months here since, again, the, the full onset of this thing really hit America in mid-March. I, I think we've heard over a period of time, I just want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly, that droplets landing on things and then somebody getting it by touching something, that that doesn't appear to be as much of a danger as we were thinking in March, but uh, lay it out for me. What, what have your studies and the studies of others shown in the time since about the danger of getting it that way versus out of the air? Contamination is still there. It's it's not as much as thought in the beginning, but I would still caution people to, to be aware of that. Which I which I encourage the use of gloves. Gloves give a false sense of security, mm-hmm. so you're touching everything, and you're all you end up doing is spreading things everywhere instead of good practice. So, for example, as you're leaving a, a public bathroom, just grab a after you wash your hands. Leave the water on, and this is part of universal precaution. Get your paper towel and use it to turn the faucet off, and use it to open the door, and then drop it in the trash. Good, you know, well-designed places will have a garbage can right next to the door. I, I walk out of the ladies' room many, many times with a paper towel in my hand because I used it to exit the ladies' room, and then I find a garbage can somewhere, somewhere, and then I dispose of it then. We still need to be careful with, with uh, surface. We still need to be mindful of how much we touch our face, our nose, our eyes, our mouth. Lick, lick our fingers to turn a page, for example. I do that all the time, and I'm more aware of it now. But um, the, the airborne concept, the airborne uh, vector was unknown in the beginning, and now we know it's, it's a very strong vector. And that is why masks have become increasingly important. Um, in the beginning, you know, people say Fauci, uh, Dr. Fauci said to not, that the mask, you know, don't run out and buy an N95. That's because it, it was so hard to come by. And the first people who should have the N95 mask and uh, unlimited supply would be the frontline workers, the paramedics, the doctors, the nurses. And I don't know. 
Ohio witnessed, like what we saw in Queens, New York, where the hospitals, all the beds were full, the ER was jammed full, people were on the floor, they were in gurneys, lined up in the hallways, dying alone because family was not allowed to come visit. Yeah. Uh, workers wearing garbage bags because there wasn't enough uh, gowns. People wearing the same mask for a 12-hour shift, and it's drenched in sweat and saliva and blood because that's just the nature of the job. So, of course, we wanted all the N95s to go to the frontline workers because they needed to protect themselves from from the airborne nature of, of this uh, transmission. I will say, I do feel like the whole thing about the noble lie... I, I, I think you, maybe you could have discouraged the N95s, but the whole thing early on, because the sources that I was trusting at the time were saying, the government's full of crap, you should be getting masks. Uh, and, and that's a thing where I feel like the, the minute you start to do that, or, or once we got into late May, early June, of where the public health authorities were like, well, now these protests, well, that's a noble cause. So, you know, there have been a couple times, I will say, I think that the public health authorities, for one reason or another, uh, have sort of undermined, uh, you know, the public confidence. I, mostly, I'm going to put this on the public, right? I'm going to mostly say the public hasn't listened to them enough, but there have been a couple times where some of these things have been pointed out, whether it be the early messaging about the masks and the, and the noble lie, or later on about the protests, of where I think consistent messaging, because I had a degree in communications, you know, that's what I'm always looking at is communications, and I think it, it, it needs to be clear and crisp and consistent all the way down the line. Sure, I mean, but let's be honest, uh, wearing a bandana is better than wearing nothing at all. Yes. It's just going to catch the droplet. Yes. Uh, but it's not as good as an N95. Sure. Not everyone can afford to spend $50 a day for an N95 and change to a new mask every day. So it's a matter, and then we go back to economics and, uh, you know, the government um, policy on providing protective equipment to not only to hospitals, but to the public for free. You know, like, where do you, where do you draw the line? How much do you charge people? Or is it a human right to, to have free access? to masks to protect ourselves. That's a whole other, um, you know, social ethical conversation, but everyone can, can grab a sock or some kind of scarf or, or a towel or something. There's, there's always some way that someone can protect themselves in public without buying an N95. And Rick, Rick if I can interject, yeah. there's also that recent discovery that the government actually was planning to mail five masks to every family in the country, yep. and I don't want to go political here, but somehow at the 11th hour, there was literally a post office release, we're going to do this, and then it was stopped, many people argued for political reasons, but just, and again, I'm sure Janelle would agree, just having five masks in every family, every household in America would have helped to some degree, we don't know how much but we do know that it would have helped save some lives. Absolutely. We'll never know how much um, death could have been prevented if, if this or that had happened at a certain point in time. But that's what epidemiologists do. They create these models and change the variables and then see, you know, what the timeline extends out to in terms of death count. But uh, I, I guarantee you that, that tens of thousands of, of deaths were preventable. And so that is why we go back to uh, the, the big point, the take home point that I want to get across 
B-R-O-W-N-S-P-E-I-N.com. He's got a store there. He's got great books. And I, I, I bought his set. Um, read about iodine. Read, read about salt. Um, we're, we're, we're salt deficient. We don't have the right salt. I spend $12 for a pound of Celtic sea salt. And so about every other salt you've got and take a Ziploc bag of the stuff with you and use it in restaurants if you're going out. Salt is, is one way to really um, protect yourself. Salt, iodine, and vitamin C, vitamin D, and, uh, and to just choose to not be in fear. Don't feed your mind with all of this fearful stuff that you see in the media. Focus on love, appreciation, call your friends who are having birthdays, um, celebrate the birthdays that have happened since February that you couldn't get together. My birthday was on March 16 when everything shut down in New York. Oh, wow. And um, the morning of my birthday, you know, at 5 in the morning, Steve's laughing, falling off the sofa here. Um, somebody took a corner a little too fast and left their tire treads on the side of my car, flipped upside down in the street, didn't hit any other car in the street, totaled my car. Wow. But I had asked the universe to take this car off my hands with a really nice settlement so I could get another car, and that's exactly what happened. So that was the universe's birthday present to me, but it also meant that when shutdown happened, I didn't have a car for a while afterwards. Mm-hmm. So um, it gave me time just to sit and pause and join my friends, do yoga on Zoom, and learn to reach out to people and connect with my friends and family in new and different ways. So I encourage that. Just people focus on loving your life, focus on your friends, focus on gratitude. And it takes mental discipline to to decide to not go into fear every day. Because I guarantee you, being fearful, being anxious has an impact on your immune system. And that is one of the most important things that we can do for ourselves, keep ourselves physically healthy, is to mind our thoughts. Excellent points there, and uh, I'm glad that worked out the way it did for you with that car. That is really excellent, and what a great birthday present that turned out to be. And uh, yep. just to, to kind of go full circle on this thing here at the end, just on the mental and psychological part of this, I always wanted to circle back around here too from uh, from the bio information I read about you before, the little note about there about helping people with PTSD. I read that with some particular interest because a good friend of mine is in the process of starting up an equine therapy business that has obviously hit a big snag in 2020 here. It's a tough time to be opening a business, and uh, I think she's more looking ahead to 2021 at this point, but uh, in particular with the winter coming here in the uh, Cleveland area. But uh, in terms of whether it be equine therapy or other experimental things out there, uh, anything that obviously can help with, with PTSD, I know in a, in a holistic sense, is going to be good for your entire body because uh, you know the, the body is not just a, a collection of silos here of where you can be suffering greatly in one area, but hey, my heart's fine, my liver's fine, whatever. Uh, you know, in a holistic kind of a way here, whenever you've got one thing wrong with you, I know it's going to affect basically your entire system. Yes, absolutely. We're holistic beings. We are indeed. I, I, I wish your friend great luck with the equine therapy. I know there's a, an organization called War Horses here in New York that gets support of the women's club here from Westchester County. We send them money every year. Um, powerful, powerful impact when um, a traumatized human can connect with a, a horse or a dog and just really feel the total unconditional, unequivocal acceptance of an animal can be a, 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 a 
generational experience. Yeah, and I uh, I got a chance. There was a little open house back in the spring here. Uh, I got a chance to get out there and see it. Uh, they, they had actually I'd never seen mini horses before. Those were really kind of interesting. But uh, oh right right yeah. Uh-huh. Oh my goodness. I, I can't even imagine that because the mini horses themselves <laughs> were Pretty much small. Oh yeah, they were much different than what I was expecting. But yeah, I mean I could I could really kinda see uh how the, the people were getting a lot out of this and uh, yeah it's a great way to go. But uh again, uh this is a conversation that uh, this has been a while in the making here. I know Steve Callis and I talked about this uh previously and he is one of our longest-standing FDH Lounge dignitaries and uh, a member of the family here in very good standing. And I'm, I'm very grateful he was able to put the conversation together, uh, Janelle, because, again, it's, it's a pleasure to get these thoughts uh, from you. We're definitely going to look forward to uh, talking to you subsequently here uh, as this crisis goes along. Uh, and then uh, it'll be nice, too, after it's done, as we can look back at some of the guideposts to this thing. And I know there's not going to be like any you know, VE Day type thing at the end of World War II uh, as far as when this thing's officially behind us. But there will be better days coming, and whether it be the guideposts up to that road or beyond, we'll look forward to talking with you subsequently. Thank you so much, and, um, you know, we can talk offline about some of the PTSD work that I've been doing, too. So Excellent. Very much so, yes, because I'm, I'm helping my friend get her business off the ground, and I, I am definitely very interested in hearing about that. So uh, thank you very much, and like I said, it'll be great to catch up with you subsequently. And uh, Steve Callis, uh, thank you so much for uh, putting this together, for giving your thoughts on the sports aspect of this. Uh, a pleasure as always, my friend. Always a pleasure. Great to be with you, Rick. Thank you both. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to FDH Lounge Mini Episode 1285.